All right. I had chosen this uh, text, which we'll hear in a second, uh, to, to preach on today. It's not, it's not in one of our series. We just finished a series. We're going to start a new series next week, so this is kind of a, it's a unicorn sermon. Um, but I had chosen it, the text, before I realized that uh, in the normal Revised Common Lectionary, the kind of schedule of readings throughout the year, it's a three-year reading kind of plan for churches, that the Sunday after Easter is always, in all three years, this text um, that comes after Easter. It's the famous story that you probably know or have heard of about doubting Thomas. So let's hear from John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hand, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you have your Bible and want to turn to John chapter 20, we're going to look a few verses earlier in a second. Um, like I said, this is an individual sermon. You know what they say about the cat being away? The mice will play. Lem is the cat, apparently, in this, in this metaphor. <laughs> you can do, do with that what you will. Um, next week, we're going to start a, a long series through the story of Joseph, starting in Genesis 37. It'll take us probably all the way through the end of the summer. We're going to just walk through that, the whole Joseph narrative, Genesis 37 to 50. There's a lot of story there. It might be a familiar story. This week, we're going to send out a couple resources. If you have time this week, I'd encourage you, watch the Bible Project video on the second half of Genesis. Um, read some things. Freshen up, if you will, on the story of Joseph. Um, it's a long story, and so unlike in Mark, where we kind of just plotted our way through the story, I'm going to kind of talk about the whole story next week, kind of set it all up, and then every week, we'll kind of look at it from a different angle as we walk through, um, through the story. So, uh, you can be ready, ready for that. Let's pray, and then we'll talk about doubting Thomas. Lord, we ask now that as we look into your word, that you would uh, give us the insight and the um, faith that we cannot uh, get or create for ourselves. We ask that you would do it, that you might be um, made known among us and made known in the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. So when I had my elbow surgery back in 2019, some of you may remember a week, before, two weeks before we were supposed to launch, I got hit by a car riding my bike and smashed my elbow. And so I preached for the first six weeks with my elbow and that weird like bionic arm looking thing. But I got pretty familiar over the course of the next year with the ulnar nerve. 
familiar with this? It's a nerve that runs through your arm. You may never have heard of it by that name, but you've heard of it by its other name, right? Which is the funny bone. The funny bone. The funny bone that's neither a bone nor funny at all. <laughs> um, if you've ever had your ulnar nerve hit, you know that it doesn't feel very good. For months and months and months after my surgery, I'd wake up where my whole arm was just these two fingers were asleep because that's the nerve that controls this. And so I got familiar with, with this nerve. But most of us know it as the, f the funny bone, which is a complete misnomer. Right? It's the wrong name for the right thing. And that is how I feel about this text. Doubting Thomas is a misnomer. This is not the right name for this disciple. Right? Doubting Thomas is kind of scorn. He's looked down upon. It's like all the disciples and doubting Thomas. Right, kind of, he's portrayed as this picture of weak faith. Like, doubting Thomas bad, don't be like Thomas, is kind of maybe what you've heard just out there. He has his own Wikipedia page called Doubting Thomas. He doesn't even get to be Peter or John or just have his own name. He gets a title, Doubting. And yet the story we just read, the high point of the story is in verse 28, where Thomas looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. It is perhaps the strongest and most striking declaration of the deity of Christ in the entire New Testament from the man that we call Doubting Thomas. And I said to myself, how do we get to this place where the man who makes maybe the most striking and profound statement of Christ's divinity is known as Doubting Thomas? How do we get to this place? How do, we get, how do we get this story so wrong? And I think we do. I think we get this story wrong. And we need to get it right, okay? Because doubt, this, we live in a doubtful age. Doubtful, doubt-filled. This age that we live in, it's full of doubt. Maybe many of you today have doubt. I would expect most of you have some kind of doubt. Doubt about doctrines. Doubt about your experience. Doubt about the future. Doubt about church leadership, doubt about organization, doubt about people's, you have doubt about a lot of things. And if, you've, if you read blogs at all or are on Twitter or whatever, you'll know that deconversion, deconstruction, disbelief, doubt, it's just everywhere. Everywhere you go, these things are happening and they're being talked about. There's a lot of doubt and unbelief in the world. And if you are not struggling with doubt, surely someone that you know is racked with doubt about the Christian story and about their faith. And this story shapes how we think about that. And so if we're going to respond correctly for ourselves and for others who wrestle with doubt, we need to get this story right. And so this is going to be a little bit wandery. Um, you're not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to undermine your own sermons, but it's a little wandery. I want to offer you three ways in which we get this text, this story wrong. Um, and I hope this is... More, more than anything, a doorway into further conversations about doubt and unbelief and disbelief, deconversion, and all the D words that go along with this. I, have, I, I can't summarize all this. I can't give you a nice, this is not a nice, neat little package sermon. Sometimes I, we have those where it's just everything kind of ends on a nice, happy note, and it's all tied up. This is less of that, and maybe the sermon reflects more of what it is like to live in a doubtful world, <laughs> um, wandering through here. But three ways in which I think we get this story wrong as we walk through the text. And here's the first one is in the beginning of this. Thomas, one of the 12, verse 24, called the twin was not with them. 
that's the other disciples when Jesus came, which we're going to read that in a second. But they go, to, they go to Thomas and they say this. They say, we have seen the Lord. And I think we get the disciples very wrong on this point. When they say we have seen the Lord, we hear them declare a fact. It's like if I came in here and I was like, I have seen a UFO. I, there's this fact that I'm declaring to you and you're like, no, I kind of doubt that. All right, I don't think that's true. I'm not going to, unless I see the UFO for myself, I'm not going to believe it. And that's maybe how we have read this. That's how I have read this story in the past. But I want you to see what the disciples actually experienced. Listen to this. Look in your Bible if you have it up to verse 19. This is the preceding story. On the, on the evening of that day, this is Easter day. On the evening of, the, of Easter day, the first day of the week, the doors were the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what happens in our current story. When he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were glad and when they, when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And listen to this. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, the disciples did not just like see the Lord. They're like, oh, I was walking down the road in Jerusalem and like, oh, Thomas, we saw him in the market. No, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> Do you see what happened? Jesus came to them in the room. He pronounced peace on them. And he gave them the Holy Spirit. Okay, the disciples had this overwhelmingly transformational experience with Jesus in the room. And who wasn't there? Thomas. Thomas doesn't tell us why Thomas wasn't there, but this is much more than the disciples seeing something. And you can bet that the disciples did not just say to him, oh, we saw the Lord and that was the end of the conversation. You can bet they told him everything. This is what happened. Jesus came and he gave us the Holy Spirit and he pronounced peace on us and he said we could forgive sins. Like, the gravity of what happened in that room that first night is unbelievable. Okay, the disciples did not just examine evidence and conclude somehow that Jesus had risen from the dead. They had an encounter with Jesus, a transformational encounter with the Master, with the Lord. Now put yourself in Thomas's shoes at that moment. Right. You're not just upset that you didn't get to see him. You're upset that you didn't get to be there in the room having this experience. And the disciples, are they're emanating faith. They believe in Jesus. And we tend to think that belief is assenting to something. Believe that. Right? I believe that the world is round. We've talked about this before. I think when we talked about our, Clay preached on this last year when we did our creed series. I believe that atoms exist. I believe a lot of things. But that's different from believing in entrusting oneself to. And when the disciples come and they say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord, they're not just saying we have seen that Jesus rose from the dead. They're saying we have seen the Lord. We are entrusted to him. He entrusted himself to us. We believe in him. And yet they're still very much doubting. Our story today, they're still behind the locked door. They're still scared of the Jews. But they had seen and been transformed by Jesus. And at this point, the disciples that had seen Jesus, they didn't know much of anything still. They didn't know anything about uh, how to interpret the first two chapters of Genesis. They didn't know anything about other doctrines. They didn't understand the atonement or the end times or all these other things that are doctrinal. All they knew was one thing. We have encountered 
the Lord and we believe in him. And Greg Boyd is an author. He says, for us, a belief is simply a mental conviction that something is true. By contrast, the biblical concept of faith involves a commitment to trust and be trustworthy in a relationship with another person. And so when we enter this story, when we read this story, we have to think about faith correctly, and I think we don't. I think we think about faith as mental assent, and we read this story as if faith is mentally assenting to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what's happening here. The disciples are not just talking about believing that he rose from the dead. They're talking about believing in him, trusting him as Lord and Master. To have faith in Jesus for any of us is to entrust ourselves to him. That's a different thing than believing that he rose from the dead. That's a different thing than believing that this is the words from God. It's, that's different. Faith in the biblical story is entrusting ourselves to a person, to the person of Jesus. The object of our faith is not our doctrine, it's not our organization, it's not our church, it's not the Bible, it's Jesus himself as Lord and Master. And that's what the disciples have experienced and encountered and they trust him. So we start off this story on the wrong foot by thinking that the disciples are purely talking about having seen a resurrected Jesus. But then we carry that over and we get Thomas we get Thomas so wrong here. Right? They say to him in verse 25, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And we were talking about this on our, on our sermon prep call and Mike Quint said that Thomas probably would have responded like, we have not seen the Lord. You have seen the Lord. I have not seen the Lord. We have not seen the Lord. You might have seen that, but I have not. Put yourself in Thomas's shoes here. You, you just spent three years following the master, this teacher, and everybody has this incredibly traumatic experience where we all flee, and he's crucified, and then some women come back from the tomb, and they say that he's risen, and people are confused, and there's all this chaos going around, and then somehow all 11 other people get to experience this encounter where he gives them the Holy Spirit and commissions them to go out. And where are you? You're Thomas. You're just, you're not there. What, what happened? You're, imagine the frustration of this. Imagine the way that Thomas is receiving this information. Can you blame him for being a little bit annoyed that he wasn't able to be there? I, I really, reading this, I really do not think that Thomas disbelieved that they had seen Jesus. I think that Thomas believed that they had seen Jesus. I think Thomas was not willing to trust Jesus until he saw him himself. See the difference between believing that and believing in? You got 11 of your best friends that you just spent three years with, and they say, hey, we, this is all that we had. We saw the Lord. We had this experience with him. You, the, he, Thomas has all the eyewitness account that he needs to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what Thomas is at fault for here. Thomas is not at fault for refusing to believe the proof He's at fault for refusing to commit to trust Jesus. Those are the, that's the difference between believing that and believing in. I think that's what's happening here. When we read this and we see Jesus, Thomas say, I want to put my hands in his side and I want to touch and I won't believe unless I get proof. We read this as Thomas demanding proof. I think Thomas is saying, no, I want to encounter the Lord the way you have encountered the Lord. I want to see his face. I want to hear his voice. I want to know that he loves me the way that he loves you. If faith is about trusting a person, this is not 
really about some scientific evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, but encounter with the person of Jesus. He's not so much looking for evidence as he is looking for an encounter with the Lord. And this brings us to a key distinction in Thomas's misnomer. Because doubt is defined as lacking certainty. To doubt something is to be unsure, to lack certainty. Unbelief is defined as a lack of trust in the Bible. I hope you can see those are different things. <laughs> lacking certainty and lacking trust are different things. They're related, but they're not the same thing. Belief and unbelief are opposites. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. I mean, you doubt things that you trust all the time. We've talked about my car, that I finally sold my car. Like, I, I doubted every time I got in that car. I was not certain whether the car would make it to the other side where I was going. But did I trust my car? Yes. I'm in it. I'm driving it to the... I have to trust it by physically engaging myself in it all the while doubting that I'm going to get there. That's faith and doubt working together at the same time. To not believe in, to not trust my car at all would be to not get in it. Be like, I'm so uncertain that I don't believe, I don't trust, I'm not even going to get in the driver's seat. You see the difference between doubt and unbelief? Thomas's problem is portrayed, I think, in this text, not as a, his problem is not that he's not certain, it's that he's unwilling to commit to Jesus, even in the face of 11 eyewitness testimony. And the upshot of that, I think, for us is that we have this mentality that says Thomas was doubting, Thomas was bad, don't be like Thomas. And yet we live in a world full of doubt. And so we have two options with our doubt. We can either express it and be seen as not believing, or we can just stuff it down and pretend it doesn't exist. And this is what we see all around us in the world. We all live in a world of uncertainty. This is an uncertain world. What happens tomorrow is uncertain. Doctrines are oftentimes uncertain. And we get stuck. We get in an unwinnable situation when we see doubt as the enemy of faith. When, when we strive for certainty, the demand for certainty creates this environment that's just ripe for people to reject their faith. It's, a, it's an environment that doesn't invite us to be like David, <laughs> like we talked about five or six weeks ago, to bring our doubts and our uncertainties and our frustrations and our angers to God because we're scared that if we doubt, we'll be labeled as a doubting Thomas. And this is what we see. This is what I see in so many of the Christian circles that I run in. Many people are either pretending that they're certain about things that they're not certain about at all <laughs> or they're abandoning their faith. There's a lot of things in the world we're not certain about. We know this leads to what is often talked about as deconstruction. I just wanted to, kind of an aside here, to, to talk about this word. I've brought it up before. Deconstruction is the word that's used to talk about questioning beliefs, ideas, doctrines, people, powers that you once believed in or once thought were settled. Like you had this belief and now you're questioning it, the word that's used commonly in Christian circles now is deconstruct. I'm deconstructing that belief that I had. 
And we're in this environment where deconstruction is happening everywhere. People that most of my friends growing up in the church are in this place where they're like, I don't like this doctrine, it can't be right. I don't like this doctrine, it can't be right. I'm just rejecting, 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 rejecting. And part of the problem is that people bring doubts to these different things, these different ideas, these different doctrines, and they're told that if you doubt those, then you cannot follow Jesus. That's what comes out of calling Thomas doubting Thomas. And it's important that we're, we move against that, that we see that this story doesn't teach us not to be doubting, but not to be unbelieving and to be able to separate those two things. One of my personal, personal story for me on this is... Um, has to do with the early chapters of Genesis. <laughs> I grew up in a, in a church that taught that the, 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 the world was created in six literal days, as the Bible says in Genesis. It says, day, 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 day. And that's what I was taught. Um, and I grew up believing that firmly. And over the, the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, I have come to doubt that interpretation, reading of the first three chapters of Genesis. Some of you are really uncomfortable right now right? because I, I'm doubting something. I'm doubting a belief. I'm doubting a doctrine. I'm doubting an interpretation. And that would, that would be interesting if it was its own story, but I also existed in a context, and I met some people later on uh, during and after college who told me multiple times that if I didn't believe that God created the world in six days, six literal 24-hour days, that I did not believe that the Bible was the word of God and I could not follow Jesus. And I was told that repeatedly. And I helped tell others that. I created an environment where to question and doubt one specific thing was associated with and connected with trusting in Jesus. This is happening all over the place. A word that we talked about this week that's helpful is this idea of bundling. Our faith is bundled. This trusting in Jesus as a person is bundled together like your cable package. You want that one channel. You want ESPN but yet you got to buy the 60 channels in order to get ESPN. And oftentimes in the Christian world, because of the way that we talk about and think about and operate with faith and doubt, we bundle all of these things together and we say, if you want to get Jesus, you have to accept these other 150 things. And they're all bundled together. And if you question one of those things, if you doubt, if you're unsure, uncertain about one of those things, then you must also be unsure about Jesus. I don't know how many times I've been in a group setting, a community group setting, or even just at a dinner table, and somebody says something about doubt, some doctrine or idea or person or organization that they doubt, and I can feel the air just get sucked out of the room because we're afraid of doubt, because we think doubt is the enemy of faith, because we've bundled our faith and our doctrine so closely together that we're scared to express the uncertainty that we have about things. Greg Boyd says, Biblical faith is grounded in a willingness to be honest with ourselves and with God about whatever questions, doubts, or complaints we may have. It's the testimony of the Psalms that we've seen over and over. Until our relationship with God is real, it will only remain a pseudo-relationship that produces a religious facade. Our inner ugliness can never be transformed by such a relationship. It can only be hidden. I say all this, make make a big deal of this, because I think the idea that bad Thomas is doubting Thomas has led a lot of us to be unwilling and unable to express the doubts and the uncertainties that we have for fear of being thought of not believing in Jesus, not trusting in Jesus. 
And I think that sent us down a road that makes it really hard for us to actually dialogue about what's really going on in our lives with one another. So we get the disciples wrong on faith, we get Thomas wrong on doubt, and then the end of this story, I think we get Jesus wrong. This is my favorite part of this story. Right? In verse 26, eight days later, this whole scene happens again. It's amazing. Jesus is doing exactly for Thomas what he did for the other disciples. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, and this is, I love that because it means that even though they had faith in Jesus, they're still terrified of the Jews. And he said to them, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You'll note the word doubt never occurs in this text. Do not disbelieve. Do not, the Greek is actually more like, do not be disbelieving, but be believing. It's an ongoing thing. And it never says, John never records that Thomas actually needs to touch his scars. But that's, that's what we think he demanded, right? He demanded evidence, proof, and yet he doesn't, he doesn't need that. He has the encounter with Jesus, and the evidence becomes secondary. The evidence is still there for the taking. Jesus even offers it to him, but he doesn't take it. Why? Because he's had an encounter with the Lord. And then Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I've heard many times this verse be taken as a way of defending some sort of blind faith. Faith that just, you don't need to see anything, just believe it. Just believe harder. Like, you don't need evidence, you don't need proof, you don't need a basis for your faith, just believe. And this verse is quoted because Jesus says, hey, you don't need to see, believe. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all because the Bible over and over and over and over indicates that there is no faith without a personal encounter with Jesus. All of us must have a personal encounter with Jesus in order to have faith. Any faith that exists without a personal encounter with Jesus, according to the New Testament, is not faith at all. We do not get the luxury of seeing Jesus in his bodily form. But Jesus sends, John tells us this in John, he sends the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Christ that comes into our hearts and transforms us. And Paul talks about that. Faith in Jesus is not blind faith. It's not some giant leap of faith over all the evidence. It is believing because you have a personal encounter with Jesus, with his spirit, with God himself. That's what we're supposed to seek after. That's the thing that anchors us in the midst of doubts and uncertainties. So I want to offer two applications. The first is for those of you who would identify right now as struggling with doubt about any number of things. If you struggle with doubt, I want you to hear me say that doubt is normal. Doubt is expected. We live in an uncertain world. And Jesus welcomes and invites our questions and our doubts and our uncertainties and our fears. He wants to hear them. It's okay to doubt. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. There's a place in, in um, James where he talks about asking in faith. And again, that verse is often used to say, like, if you ask and really believe it, if you're certain about it, again, we often assuming that doubt and faith are opposites. If you're asking in faith, 
And asking in faith is not being certain of the answer. Asking in faith is being certain of the character of the person in whom you're asking. That's trusting in rather than trusting that. It's like when my kids, like the difference between the way a teenager asks their parents something and the way like a four-year-old asks their parents. The four-year-old asks their parents with just implicit trust in the parent. The teenager asks with some sort of like back motive, you know, like challenge. Asking in faith is asking in good faith, as it were. The gospel is that you can trust God in the midst of your uncertainty about anything about anything. The other side of this is for those of us who minister to people who doubt. I just want to offer a few thoughts and suggestions from this text. Jesus comes into this room and what does he say to the disciples? He says, peace, my peace I give to you. And then he immediately says, as I have been sent with peace, so I send you. Jesus sent his disciples, those of us who have encountered him, to be the emissaries, the ambassadors of personal encounter with God. We are the ones who carry peace to the people around us. When people express doubt, people express questions, we need to be the first people to offer them peace in the midst of that. So here's a couple of just very specific suggestions. One, when someone expresses doubts to you, don't freak out. It sounds simple, but I can't tell you the number of times I've seen this happen in my very presence. <laughs> There's like that, I think it's a, a physiological reaction, actually, but you can probably speak to that. Uh, but when you hear somebody say something you don't agree with or you don't know is right or you think is a doubt or a fear, first step, if you want to offer them peace, is don't freak out. Don't cut off conversation. Don't question their faith in a community group setting, in a personal conversation around dinner at someone's house. Don't freak out. <laughs> Offer them peace. Ask questions. Jesus says, as I have been sent, so I have sent you. What's another way that he was sent? He was sent with his nail-pierced hands. And this is Paul repeatedly talks about this. One of the things we have to offer is our own sufferings. To the world. When you come and talk to someone with doubt, rather than offering them evidence that you think they need, can you offer them your own nail-pierced hands, your own suffering on behalf of Christ? Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 1, where he says that he's filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ is the bodily presentation of them to the people who need them. Thomas got that. We don't get that. We can offer that to one another. Do you offer peace with your demeanor and your words? Do you bring your suffering and offer it to people? Or do you offer evidence and condemnation and judgment and scorn like we tend to when we find doubt among us? In Jude, verse 22, the actual word doubt is used in this sentence. Be merciful to those who doubt. Mercy, not judgment to those who doubt. Look, you and I can't make personal encounter happen for anyone, but we can offer to them our own selves as ambassadors of Christ. The last two are just about questions. One, invite questions, doubts, and fears to those people that you know. 
Be the person that wants to know. Be curious about people and how they came to their conclusions and why they think what they think and how they feel. Ask questions. Invite questions to be asked. Listen. Be a good listener when you ask questions. And the last one is just to major on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Paul says, I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians. This is what he's writing to the Corinthians in chapter 1. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It doesn't sound like certainty to me. It doesn't sound like lack of doubt to me. But he knew one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's be people that bear the power of God where we go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather each week to be reminded of the one in whom we believe. I pray that you would impress upon us um, your offer of peace, your open hands, your willingness to love us in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our fear. Make yourself known, Father, to those who are doubting, to those who are wrestling. Let us not be people of unbelief, people who refuse to trust you, but people who bring our uncertainties to you and ask in faith, even when we don't understand. We thank you for this story and ask that you would teach us from it. Prayed in the name of Christ.